Hi, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. This is week two. <laughs> Inside my house. <laughs> how how are you feeling about it? Uh, I'm mostly good. Um, I mean, like, every now and then I get kind of freaked out about what's just going on in the world and how this is just such an odd time for us. And I, I keep having moments of, oh my gosh, what is what's going on like this is so yeah it's crazy and kind of upsetting and very upsetting but you know but I feel like a lot of the time I forget about it and I feel like I'm just like it's a day off or something yeah this morning I was like remembering what work was like and I was like wow (laughs) work what a concept (laughs) so that was a little that made me a little sad yeah at least we have activities (laughs) yes we've done three puzzles so far yes more to come how many pieces have we put together? What's 550 plus 750? 1300. And then what was the big one? Another 750. So we've done 2050 pieces. Are you sure? There Cinderella two... was 750. Oh, that was 750, but I thought oh, Tiana oh, was. Tiana was only 300. So we've only done 1600. Wow. Wow. Amateurs. <laughs> well, when we get the Titanic puzzle, that's 2000 pieces done. Do you have it here? Yeah. That'll really boost us The up. ultimate challenge. That one I feel like we need like a big space and a big like... We can find a space. Like some... Like a show to binge. Yeah. That we're willing to commit to. We did... We started spinning out doing one puzzle, but then we never finished it. Yeah. Which is sad because I liked that show. Yeah, me too. But I just haven't found the motivation to finish it. Mm. We could watch Killing Eve. Oh, I need to do that. Yeah, we could do that. Thank God that's coming back. <laughs> that's our world right now. Just we could do that. Yeah, we could we could do that. Why not? <laughs> it's true. As long as we're staying in the house and staying away. It's from also other weird because I feel like the days are flying by. Like I cannot believe I just spent four hours playing Assassin's Creed. Like I really cannot believe that just happened. Oh yeah, I was. I spent this whole afternoon just in your room, FaceTiming with a friend from college, and I didn't think that was four hours. Yeah. But here we are. <laughs> so it's weird that the time flies. And yeah, yeah. We're accomplishing nothing. It's like the less you do, the faster it goes. But the no, the better it gets, it does not. <laughs> yeah. Better it does not get. Yeah. I am having like, we, like I'm very comfortable in my sleeping arrangements, but I keep like, you know how yesterday I told you that I keep waking up early in the morning, like from mm-hmm. nightmares. It's mm-hmm. like last night, it was all night. I kept waking oh. up very regularly. And I don't even remember them after they're done. I just like Did you get awake. up and walk around at like 2.15 a.m.? Oh. Okay. I was still awake at 2.15, which normally I'm asleep by then. Yeah, but I was, I was awake this time and I heard some movement. But it might just be, Michael told me today that we have a squirrel <gasps> in the walls. So it might have been the squirrel. I think I might have rolled over and put my laptop on the floor. But... No, this is like, well, this was sounded like footsteps, like walking around. Oh, no. But it's just, a, it's fine. It's just a squirrel. <laughs> you know, something to liven up the place. <laughs> Add some excitement the to our lives. The squirrel heard that there's a quarantine and we need to stay inside. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> He's just trying to follow the rules. I was I was on the third floor today and I was just like sitting there playing my video game. Michael walks over to a panel and opens it up and I was like, first of all, I didn't even know that opened. Second of all, like what what are you doing? And he's like, Well, I'm trying to catch a squirrel. This is on the third floor. I was like, <laughs> Oh no. Like <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm just gonna ignore that this is happening and go back to eating my salad. Like I can't process that right now. Um, and then later, like an hour later, something rustled next to me and I was like, it's the squirrel. <laughs> I had it, one of my like six nightmares I had last night was I sat, I was like lying in bed looking at my phone like I thought I had woken up yeah. and the mouse walks across my stomach. <gasps> oh. And I was like, woke up like, oh my God, thank God that wasn't real. But I kind of checked for a minute. Yeah. 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 On Animal Crossing, the one of the things you can do is catch tarantulas and they're like a lot of money. But it's, like, terrifying because they chase you. So you have to try to figure out how to catch it before it, like, bites you. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that last night. And I felt, I, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm starting to feel like I have bugs crawling on me. So I need to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Have I talked on this podcast about the time I got in a tug of war with a squirrel? No. 
but please share. It was when we were still in college. I was walking down Academic Row, mm-hmm. and there was a trash can that someone had left a naked juice bottle like on top of. Mm-hmm. And I and there was a squirrel like near the trash can, but <laughs> not like I wasn't worried about him. Right. I thought when I walked to the trash can, he would walk away. But like right as I started walking over to pick up the juice, he jumped up on the trash can and grabbed the naked juice and it was empty except it still had like some juice on the inside right. that was, uh, stuck to the outside. Right. And he like literally put it to his lips like he was drinking it. Uh, and I was like really close. Like I was like a foot away and I was like, shoo, 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 shoo. And he like started to back. So he backed off, he let go and I thought he was going to run away. So I grabbed the naked juice, but then he turned around and grabbed it again. And we literally were like... <laughs> Back and forth. Back and forth. I don't know why I didn't immediately let go. But I was like, I must recycle this. <laughs> Give it back. Give it back. Well, that squirrel wasn't going to recycle it. No. So you were the hero in that situation. Um, I'm sure we've talked about the squirrel we saw. You saw. I say we. Like oh, I eating there. the taquito? Yeah, eating a taquito. Oh, a hero. Yeah. I, I don't know. College. The squirrels that live on college's campus live, live, live a charmed life. They do. You know? Because college students are gross. Yeah. And so they can just get all that random crap, <laughs> like that naked juice and that taquito, <laughs> and a full meal. That's uh, that's a, a meal I'd be proud to have at this point. I I'm eating so you weirdly. You drink naked juice. I drink naked juice. I just had one. Yeah. So my topic. You asked me how rosé is made, mm-hmm. and. I actually have a cousin who's a sommelier. Ooh. Her name is Danielle Daduro, and she is preparing a little message for us that I will maybe put in later. But she assures me that this is a really good time of year to be talking about this mm-hmm. because this is the time of year that like rose, producers of rosé are about to release Ooh, what great. they've made for sale. I meant to save that bottle of rosé, but I drank it. <laughs> so we could drink rosé while we did this episode. You drank one without me? No. We oh, drank we drank it. it. We okay. drank it. I was like, where was this bottle that you drank alone? <laughs> oh, my mom My mom might have one. She's sitting off to the side silently and like is waving. Um, we can have it with dinner. So rosé is a type of wine that incorporates some of the color from grape skins, but not enough to qualify as red wine. Okay. The juice from the purple grapes is actually a greenish white color or a grayish color. So it's a misconception that it's just wine made from red grapes. Oh. And white wine is white wine made from white grapes. Like, yes, those are the two types of grapes that are used for each thing. But if you just juiced a red grape, it would be greenish white or grayish white. Okay. It wouldn't. The, all of the color comes from the pigment in the skin. Okay. But that, even if you like squished up a grape, like it wouldn't be purple. Like you need, it needs to go through this process called um, maceration yeah which is where it's like soaked and it's crushed up so that the skin breaks and the pigment can be extracted Mm -hmm. rosé is actually the oldest known type of wine oh because the way that you make it is like the easiest wine making method and there are three major ways to make rosé skin contact is the probably the most popular and that is when black skinned grapes are crushed and the skins are allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time okay and the whole like the thing that before it's wine it's called a must and that's Mm -hmm. just like the crushed up grapes and like Mm -hmm. what it's floating in and the skins and all the stuff around it Mm -hmm. that word will come up a little bit and so i thought i'd define it the the process of those things remaining in contact for typically two to 20 hours um allows the pigment and the flavor to escape the skins and go into the must right the skins are then discarded and the wine is fermented without the skins. Okay. So that's like the main thing about this is how is that the skin is allowed to stay for a with little while and then yeah. the skin is what it gotten rid of. Yeah. The longer the must is exposed to the skins, the darker the red or purplish pigment to the wine. Okay. And for red wines, when you're making red wine, the skins are kept with the must throughout the fermentation process. The second technique for making red wine uh, not red wine, rosé. Rosé. I don't <laughs> care about red wine. How dare I? Is called. No, I do care. About oh, and wine. I, I literally looked up how to pronounce this like four times. It's a French word. Oh, I heard. I heard you translate this. Saigne. Yeah. S a i g n e e, and then one of the e's has an accent. Saigne. Yeah, I think that it's sounds like... Um, and that is the French word for bleeding. Oh. Although. <laughs> and this is actually. Um, Skin contact is the technique that winemakers use if they're primarily 
producing rosé. Mm-hmm. Like if you're setting out to make rosé, that is the process you will use. Okay. But um, Seigneur is the process that's used by winemakers who make mostly red wine, but also make rosé. Okay. Uh, because the process is um, when you're going to make red wine, you have all the fruit and everything floating in the must. And it's done, this process is done by winemakers who want to make red wine that has more of a color and more of a tannin. Okay. Do people know what tannin is? I didn't. You you guys know more about wine than me, I think. So. Uh, you you should explain. Yeah. Okay, so tannin, <laughs> it's a group of chemical compounds that affect the color, the aging ability, and the texture of the wine. Yeah. And it's most noticed in the aftertaste. Like, you don't really taste it when you're drinking yeah. it or sipping it, but after you've okay. swallowed. So you've heard me say, like, this wine is chewy, right? Mm-hmm. That's because of tannins. Oh, cool. <laughs> and you're always like, what? And then I said, it's because of tannins. And you looked at me like I was crazy. So yeah. now you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. Um, so during the process of making the red wine in the beginning stages mm-hmm. when the maceration is starting, um, you have the big vat of the juices, like I said, mm-hmm. and the skins and everything. And what you do is you drain out a little bit of the juice to mm-hmm. increase the volume uh, and the like density of everything else going on in order to make the tannins more substantial for the red wine. Yeah. But what you have when you like are draining that water is you get a pink runoff. Oh. That's like the the juice that's been drained from that mixture. Yeah. And rather than throwing it away, winemakers just ferment that and that becomes rosé. Rose. Okay. That makes sense. So that's the second way of doing it. The third way is blending. Now here's <laughs> the thing. <laughs> you can technically... I blended rosé myself. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did we say this last week? Yeah. yeah. But I've definitely done that multiple yeah. times that I just don't feel like getting a new glass. So I pour a different type of wine on top of my old <laughs> wine and then it's just like pink, but it still tastes like the new wine. Yeah. But I pretend it's rosé. Yeah. yeah. You can mix red wine and white wine to impart color and make it look pink. But this is really discouraged and looked down upon in the winemaking community. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and especially in wine growing regions. In fact, it is forbidden by law in France. I was going to ask, if I was, if you had said it's forbidden by law in a country, my first guess would have been in France. France. Because they're no fun. Like, the French are the least fun people. They're so serious. Sorry to our French listeners. I'm sure no, you're great No, I people. like, I love France. Like, I have no issue with France. It's a beautiful country, but they are so such serious people as, mm. about French culture, yeah. specifically. Like, yeah. they're not serious in that they can't have a laugh. But, like, <laughs> they're very serious about French yeah. culture and things that matter. I mean, the Italians yeah. are, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's forbidden by law in France to create rosé through mixing, except in the Champagne region. I don't know why, but for some reason, it's not forbidden by law in Champagne. However... Even producers of wine in that region, like, still would never. Yeah. Like, it's not like, ooh, it's legal here. Let's do it. No, they don't want to either. They also look down on it. Is I don't... pink champagne a thing? I'm sure it is. I'm sure. It... Well, I mean, there's sparkling rosé. Yeah, but that's not the same. No. But I'm sure there's some pink champagne. But I'm sure it's made through a similar method. Like yeah. Like, bleeding or... Yeah. I'm not bleeding, Signe, but <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> uh, so a little bit of history about Rose. After World War II, there were two Portuguese wine producer families that both around the same time released a sweet, slightly sparkling rose, and they sold it to European and American markets. And these wines, they were called Mateus and Lancers. Mm. They sold so well. They went on to set records. Um, in sales both in Europe and the U.S., and they dominated the Portuguese wine industry for most of the 20th century. So they were like the big, like they had the monopoly on rosé mm-hmm. pretty much. And, however, in recent years, this popularity has dwindled uh, because a lot more companies make rosé now. And there's also more companies that are, like, it's more popular now to have a drier rosé. Like yeah. theirs is sparkling and I think more sweet. Yeah. And that's less popular now and more companies are making dry rosés and that's becoming more of the norm. So I think they're still like doing well as a company, but they're mm-hmm. not considered like the the Coca-Cola of wine. Like right. not that they were anymore. But... <laughs> right. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. Uh, and also there's something that became recently more trendy, which is blush wine, mm-hmm. which is like white Zinfandel. Yeah. And that's sort of cut into the rosé market because it's not technically rosé. But... And Moscato isn't m- rosé 
either. No, but that's it, probably a blush, it's a blush line. line. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which we'll talk about those in a minute. Ooh. Um, in the 1970s, the demand for white wine exceeded the availability of white wine grapes. Oh. So many Californian producers made, quote, white wine from red grapes. Oh. Um, using the Senye method. Yeah. But they just like got rid of this the the pink, yeah. The skins really fast. So yeah. it didn't turn pink. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it is I mean, I knew it was different grapes. It is yeah. it is different grapes that are used for it, but like sometimes you can yeah, get like possible. a white wine made with red grapes. Yeah. Because it's really the skins that are really the important part. That would be some trippy tasting white wine. <laughs> like, I just think white wine and red wine taste so very different. Well, again, like, I think the the, the tannins yeah. and the skins in red wine change the taste too. So I, yeah. I wonder if it's, I don't know if it's physically possible to have a white wine that tastes like red wine. Yeah. I don't know. But even so, even if you're making white wine out of the grapes that you make out of red wine, like some of that flavor like most white wines for example taste like stone fruit right so imagine but red wines are like i'm trying to think of a really musty earthy red wine i don't know gosh name a wine um <laughs> you're not looking no, at the right you person know what like mean? barefoot like, cabernet like <laughs> cabernet no that's not earthy um, <laughs> exactly that's why i said i'm not the person to ask um, like I wouldn't say Cabernet is very earthy, but like red wines in general have a much dark, like they have a darker taste to them. Like red wines are something that you eat with meat, chocolate, like steak, stuff like that. But white wine you would eat with fish, like a salad, lighter, lighter material. So I'm yeah. just trying to imagine, like, I feel like if someone handed me a, a white wine and it tasted like a red wine, I would be really like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like I know, you know? Yeah. Like, who are you trying to fool? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I wonder if that's scientifically possible. I mean, isn't that what you said they were doing? Well, I don't think... Well, if they're using the grapes, like, I I really think the skins are a major... Yeah. ...effector of the taste as well as the color. Yeah. So I don't think it's possible for it to not have that color, for it to be, like, a a white, clear wine. Mom has thoughts. Well, it... Mom just wanted to say that um, it also take into consideration... What they do when they put it into the barrels. Right. And that could make a white wine very deep and... That's true. We have an expert here. (laughs) (laughs) She knows more about this than both of us. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Ooh, you know what would be really cool? If you managed to get like a white Chianti. That would be really cool. You know? But I don't know if it would taste like Chianti. Uh, I I, I love Chianti, but I... I love it mainly because I lived right by a um, winery. A, yeah, a winery in Italy when I was studying abroad that only made Chianti. Mm-hmm. Although I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, me saying this. We got uh, on a regular basis. My friends and I got very inebriated <laughs> off of just Chianti. So I wonder if that would put me in like a headspace of <laughs> like like my friend. I have one friend who can't drink red wine without being like, this just makes me think of a time that I vomited from. <laughs> Drink. She can't drink red wine at all. She t- she couldn't drink any dr- any wine for a while. I I hope that's different now. But she'd be like, nope, just makes me think. But she's also a very petite person, so like, I would like no one else was like getting that drunk. Like, right? No one else was vomiting. <laughs> right. I mean, like, I don't know. I can't have Svedka, but I can still have <laughs> vodka. You know. <laughs> I don't know. She has a very specific memory for taste and things. Yeah. So let's talk about blush wines. Um, their blush used to be back before it was like a popular thing. Now it used mm-hmm. to just be a descriptor for the color of pale pink wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now it is used to indicate a specific sweet pink wine. It's yeah. not a specific brand, but like a, a sweeter tasting kind of wine. All blush wines are sweet tasting. That's what you're saying? Well, yes. Okay. Rosé is the term for dry pink wine. Yeah. And blush is the term for, um, sweet pink wine mm-hmm. but blush used to be considered a kind of rosé so it used to be like well all blush is rosé but not all rosé is blush. blush yeah but now that's really the case in europe but not in america in america they're two separate things that oh sense. that's interesting that it's in america that they're two separate things yeah i would expect the europeans to be like they are different <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but in other places like America, if you want rosé, um, or if you want a dry wine, you have to ask for rosé. If you want a sweet wine, you have to ask for blush. Mm. But like if you were in Europe, you'd say, I want a rosé, maybe which kind, and blush would be an option. Gotcha. But in 2015, rosé went viral because men drinking rosé were referred to as brosé online, (laughs) which is so dumb. That's so dumb. I'm so... (laughs) (laughs) That's so idiotic. (laughs) And then in 2016, the... Bar Premie in New York uh, developed a froze. Oh, and yeah. That, like, got really popular online, yeah. and then everybody started doing it. I've tried it. so many times to make froze, and I've failed every time. I don't get it. <laughs> There's something that I'm not doing correctly. Activity. It always <laughs> becomes like a slush. Like, I need it to become a rose. I need it to get solidified and stay solidified. Did we try to make it last summer? Yeah, but it didn't go well. No, it was just like. There's something you need to add. You need to have juice in it. In addition, it needs to be like ice, Mm. rosé, juice, and there was something else. And we didn't have the third thing. We were like, we'll try it anyway. And then it didn't work. Yeah, it just becomes, it just melts so quickly. Like, I want to, like, it's like making a frozen margarita. Like, whenever I try to make one, it just becomes slushy. But somehow, restaurants, when they make it, it stays frozen the whole time. Yeah. That's what I want. Otherwise, it's not frosé. Someday you'll get your perfect frosé. Yeah, someday. That you can make from home. So, I actually decided to phone a friend. Ooh. Uh-huh. And my cousin, who I think I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, her name is Danielle Daduro. She's a sommelier. Cool. Um, I call her Danny. She's really cool. Um, she sent me a document entitled... All things rosé. And some of these things I touched on, she clearly has a more expert way of explaining them than I do, but uh, (laughs) a couple of things I talked about. You did a great job. I did my best. But she talks about the different methods of making rosé, and I talked about three of them, but I didn't talk about direct press, which is when red grapes are crushed and pressed the same way as white wine is produced, Mm. and they get just a bit of color extraction from the limited skin contact while in the press. These are the lightest color rosés and are very delicate. Like me. (laughs) Like my emotions. They're often blended with the Saigne method that we talked about before Mm -hmm. to gain a bit of color and a different profile. Cool. She gave a couple of recommendations of foods to eat with rosé, her favorite being crisp non-vinegar-based salads, grilled fish or shrimp, Tex-Mex. Interesting. Yeah. She says, try swapping your typical margarita for a rosé. Sautéed vegetables, egg dishes, crab dishes, paella, fresh berries, mild Thai food, and tuna. Ooh, tuna would be good. Mm -hmm, I love mm -hmm. tuna. She also goes into a little bit of thing when she's talking about the maceration method, which is the um, skin contact. Yeah. She mentions something that I found super interesting. She says, a wine geek out moment. It is the color compounds in the skin of the grape that control the color of the wine. Therefore, if you don't touch the skins, you can make white wine from red grapes, which we were... Mm-hmm. curious about and with white wine if you do touch the skins you will get not white wine but another trendy wine orange wine oh that's cool isn't that i never even thought that was possible so those are really the main things she says she says um rosés t- are totally vary depending on the grape variety fermentation method and amount of sugar left behind but for this reason there's a rosé for everyone because there are so many different rosé profiles Dominant flavors overall are cranberry, currants, strawberry, cherries, apricots, orange peel, and white floral. Ooh, I like white mm-hmm. floral. Um, she goes into a little bit of detail about the different um, grape varieties that make mm-hmm. the best different types of wine in the different regions that make really good rosé. I was wondering that. Yeah, like in the Finger Lakes, they make really good Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, and Blaufrankisch. Blaufrankisch, probably. Something mm-hmm. like that. California makes uh, Zinfandel, which is the biggie, um, which is also like the, the, that's the blush. Like that's the big blush. That's the famous one. And multiple others, Cabs, Merlot. France is Grenache, Syrah, and Pinot Noir. Spain, Tempranillo, Garnacha, and then Italy, multiple native Italian reds are used. And those are, oh, those are all the red wines that are used to... Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the that's skins the right that are used to make yeah, rosé. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nastiest. Now I understand what she's saying. Again, um, as she recommended, I've <laughs> had a glass. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Danny, if I'm totally butchering all this information you've sent me, but I totally appreciate it. It was super cool. No, that was great. Thank you, Danny. That was super interesting. She even finally spelled Sonia phonetically, which I was 
searching the internet for. Sonia, we were saying it correct. Oh, good. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> so helpful. Thank you, Danny. Honestly, like, I never really thought about all the different, like, training you need to become a sommelier. And mm-hmm. like, she's got a lot of different certifications, which are really cool. It's super cool. It's yeah. really admirable. It's a really admirable thing because the more I drink wine, the more interested in it I am. Um, so I imagine that would be a really fascinating career to have, but also really difficult. And then to cap things off on my end, um, I got some fun facts. Ooh. So I don't know how they know this, but <laughs> um, the first wine created was a rosé in 7000 BE, BC. How do they know that? <laughs> I don't know. But again, I think it's just the easiest to make. It just, yeah, like, and they must have artifacts that yeah. show how they made the wine, and then they yeah. deduced from there that that's the type of wine they were drinking. Yeah. And Where was it? Mesopotamia? I don't know. I don't know details. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know enough about ancient civilizations to know. Mesopotamia, I though, mean, like, I feel it like... It could be Mesopotamia. Yeah. It could be Egypt. Those are definitely two options. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about other ancient civilizations. To tell I just you remember it being are. like beaten into my head as like a sixth grader. They're like Mesopotamia was like the hub of all civilization. Yeah. Rosé is not meant to be aged. It is consumed within two to three years of release. Oh. Or it's meant to be. It's best consumed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you could wait. It just wouldn't be as good. The Provence region of France is considered to be the most consistent for creating high quality rosé at any price. So if you want a cheap rosé, get one from Provence. Although I wonder, I always wonder about like shipping costs and. Oh, it's probably very expensive. I mean, like, but like if you're there, some wineries do like they do like tiers of expense, you know. So they probably, I mean, like most wineries would have like a super expensive one, Mm. but most likely if they're shipping it over here, it's going to be even the cheapest one probably would still be expensive. Like think about how much Chianti is here versus how much it was in Tuscany when they made it. Oh, it was so cheap. I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I miss those days. (sighs) A prayer for Italy. Anyway. A prayer for Italy. Um, And France. And France, yeah. Um, In France and the U.S. it is called Rosé, but in Italy it's Rosato, and in Spain it is Rosado. Yeah, because rosé in um, Italian means red. <laughs> or, or it's like rosso, like the, uh, yeah, the yeah. translation. It's um, roja in French, in Spanish. Mm. Rosé is best served chills, 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And lastly, um, rosé is thought of to be a summer drink, but it also pairs well with barbecue, spicy food, chicken and pork, sushi, seafood, charcuterie, cheese, tapas, salads, pizza, and more. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's most things. That's not most things, but that was just a long list. Well, earlier you mentioned like steak. There's no, I didn't see any. No, that's red wine. Yeah. There's no like red meat. I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't drink rose with red meat. Honestly, like I don't, I like I'm sure, like I trust people when they're like, this pairing's really good, but. I feel like I could drink any. I don't. I wouldn't be able to pick one out, but if you handed me a good pairing or a bad pairing, I'd be able to tell you like yeah. that was a good pairing, or I'd be like mm, that was a bad pairing. I do remember my cousin um, Danny at her wedding. She, she, because she's a Somali and she knows so much about wine, whatever you like checked off as you were gonna eat, like whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you RSVP'd as, what dish you were gonna receive, she had like a wine pairing for you. Mm-hmm. And I remember at her wedding drinking the wine and being like gosh she's right like this is delicious no like, this i think is that's so cool i want i want to do that for my wedding <laughs> one day <laughs> <laughs> if we ever get out of here to if we ever get out of here others, <laughs> if we ever reunited in society <laughs> i told you sarah know. yesterday that if we're trapped in here for like months i'm just gonna eventually like go insane and propose to her and like, get married in this house and <laughs> for tax purposes <laughs> we'll just yeah be life partners yeah it's the direction we're heading <laughs> That was super interesting. Thanks yeah. for doing that. Of course. I learned a lot. Me too. I, I feel like I know barely any. It's uh, It was cool for me to learn about it. I like drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> you and many others. <laughs> it's good to learn. Um, okay, so I'm on Reddit. I love scatting in the middle of the episode. <laughs> Boopity boop boop boop. Um, so I wanted to talk about, I was just like going through Reddit looking for something to talk about for our middle segment and somebody asked is it normal parentheses common to tend to want to re-watch favorite films or television shows over and over instead of 
watching new things. Mm. And it made me think about how you and I both agree that it makes us far less likely to watch something if someone recommends it to us. Yeah, I have to discover it on my own. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. I learned from reading the responses to this that studies show that your brain reacts the same to seeing characters in a television show as it does to seeing friends. So Mm. seeing television characters that we know like is a comfort to us mm-hmm. so that's why we tend to to answer this person's question watch things that we've watched before just because it feels like we're hanging out with friends again Aww. um so i'm like just <laughs> transferring that into our predicament yeah i think what it is, is that both of us have like a thing where we need control mm-hmm. and because now now that i read that our brain associates television characters with real people mm-hmm we like to control when new people come into our lives. Oh. We like to be like, oh, I'm ready to seek out new people for my life or mm. like a new scenario or something. We don't like yeah. someone to be like, here, meet my friend. Oh, yeah, that's super true. Because I like thinking about myself, I'm far more comfortable being like, I'm going to get a friend than someone being like, hang out with someone I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super true. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's a good connection. Yeah. So that was a little thing. I just thought that'd be... Yesterday, you and I both supported each other in watching yes. movies that we've been telling each other to watch. And it went really well. It went very well. I feel like we introduced each other to our friends. Yes, you got to meet Sassy Chance and Shadow. And you and got I to meet Mary, Mary, Tibbs, and Gib. Oh, that was great. We watched Homeward Bound and Mary and the Witch's Flower, if you don't know those characters by name. It's great. I told Julie today that we watched Homeward Bound and she like got upset and she was like, you're a brave soul. Like, I can't get through that movie. I was like, she was like, you have a heart of stone. It has a, it has a happy ending. Like the way, I don't know, animal movies, I'm always like, someone's not going to make it. Like every animal movie, because there's just so yeah. many movies out there about pets where someone doesn't make it. That now I like, I can't watch animal movies because yeah. in my head, I'm convinced of someone's someone's not making it to the end of this film so what a pleasant surprise that everyone made it to the end well i mean not to spoil homeward bound it came out in the 90s yeah you're not spoiling (laughs) it they all make it but i forgot and in my head i remembered all of the things that happening Mm -hmm. that happened to them happening Mm -hmm. but i i like i think it dawned on me for the first time watching it last night that i was like oh all three of these main character animals have a moment where you think they're gonna die yeah and how dare this movie put us through that like, Sassy goes over the waterfall. You yeah. think she's dead. Thank God she's not. Chance yeah. gets attacked by a porcupine. He, you, He's never really in mortal danger, but it's, it's like, still oh, scary. no. Yeah, like, it's still scary. Like, he has to, like, get the And then Shadow. Oh. <laughs> that scene by the railroad tracks kills me. He falls into a hole. <laughs> <laughs> but then he breaks his leg, re-injures it, and he can't get out. But and you think they left him for dead. Yeah. It was, that was dramatic. It was dramatic. I don't remember what happens in the second one, but I'm pretty sure it's almost exactly the same thing. Well, I liked Beethoven. Beethoven's <laughs> funny. No one, I don't think anybody dies. Not in my memory. And then in the second one, there are puppies. It's great. Oh, yeah. I love, I love Beethoven. That's my safe animal movie. <laughs> and like... The Disney animal movies, yeah. except for Fox and the Hound. That's not a safe movie. No. <laughs> if you want to cry, you watch Fox and the Hound. But, like, The Aristocats is safe. 101 yeah. Dalmatians. It's fine. I watched a lot of Air Bud when I was growing up. Oh, um, yeah. Loved Air Bud. Air Bud's a great one. Some of the ones that I watched with my family, like, were not, like, movies that if you, you watch to have a good time. Like, Shiloh, I feel like, was depressing. Oh, Shiloh's depressing. Um, my Dog Skip is depressing. Lassie. Um, Old Yeller. Oh, Where the Red Fern Grows. Where the Red Fern Grows. Oh. I read that in sixth grade. Thinking about that, I was like, that's sadistic that they have sixth <laughs> graders read Where the Red Fern Grows. I remember reading it and being like, this is reality. This is adulthood. Like, that's all the books we read. And then they got off the island and they all lived happily ever after. Well, I guess in fourth grade we read Because of Winn-Dixie. And that book can, that book can be really sad. But it's such a good book. But then we read Where the Red Fern Grows. And I was like, this is literally, I was like, I feel so mature. I remember thinking that when we read The Giver in seventh grade. Being like, this is adult content. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we read Hatchet. We read The Cape. Oh my God. No, not The Cape. Is that what it's called? The one about the kid who gets, um... 
stuck on a deserted island and there's already a guy there and the guy's blind. No, he goes blind and the man has to help him. Do you know that book? <sighs> that sounds I think so it's familiar. called The Cape. I don't remember having ever read a book called The Cape, but I remember what you're talking about. I'm going to look it up because it's going to drive me nuts. I don't know. See, what I'm picturing that, though, is that was, like, blind. I'm The book that I'm thinking of, though, they're not on an island. They're on, like, the a K. raft. It's called The K. Yes. Yeah. They get stuck on, yes. like, this small dune. But, yes, they do yeah. have to go out on a raft. And the boy goes blind. Yes, I remember that. Does he get his vision back at the end? Like, they take him to a hospital. And they... I don't remember. I didn't get a diorama for that book of, like, what their <laughs> K looked like. That's what I remember. Yes, I did, too. Was it like a national, the national curriculum every student in sixth grade? <laughs> About that time. I every sixth grader must make a diorama of the K. I ready to learn about a hospital? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have so much free time on my hands that I did my notes by hand. I saw you doing that this morning. I was like, wow. I just have so much free time. And I'm like, <laughs> why not? I got to use some of these notebooks I have. Got to make sure. I, have you ever realized that it's been like months since you hand wrote something? Yeah. Like, I write notes at work, like on sticky notes. I'll write stuff down, but it's not like I'm right, I'm handwriting long paragraphs of things. Mm-hmm. And my handwriting deteriorates fast. I can write nice for like three sentences, and then I'm like, oh no. Because your hand gets tired. And your you're hand like, gets tired, but also forever. I'm, out of, I'm out of practice with writing, apparently. Okay, so um, you asked me, per request of my mom, to talk about the Bellevue <laughs> Hospital. Um, which is a hospital in New York City. It is officially known now as the NYC Health and Hospitals slash Bellevue. So it's a part of a larger, what's that called? Cohort of hospitals. But this mm-hmm. is, it's called slash Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the oldest hospital, public hospital in the United States, um, which is funny because it was founded in 1763. And I know there's like probably European countries out there being like, that's your oldest. Because I, <laughs> I like know for a fact that there are hospitals that have been around since like the 1400s at yeah. least. But this is the oldest in the U.S. The hospital started as an almshouse for the poor, which is like a homeless shelter kind of, um, in 1736 on the city common and what is now City Hall, mm-hmm. same grounds. In 1798, the city purchased Bellevue Farm, which is a property on the East River, which is wild to think about New York City having, having a farm, farm in it. In it but yeah. it, was a, it was a farm, quote unquote. I yeah. don't think there were animals there. Um, at this time, the yellow fever pandemic was destroying the city and the new property mm. was in the quarantine zone. Um, and Bellevue essentially became a place to send sick family members to die for the poor. Most mm. of the situations I'm talking about, when I say people went to Bellevue, I'm talking about, like, the poorest of the poor. Yeah. Um, Bellevue established a partnership with Columbia's medical school in 1787, and this partnership lasted until 1968, so it lasted 181 years, which is pretty cool. Um, NYU also conducted research there starting in 1819. Bellevue established its own medical college in 1861 and it was the first medical college in the nation i think in the nation not the world um with a direct connection to a hospital Mm. supposed to be like you go here and then we go over to this hospital it's like it's in the hospital yeah um it had the first maternity ward in america in 1799 is when that was established in 1813 it established or 1873 sorry it established the first nursing school based on the work of florence nightingale love her yeah although i feel like i actually don't know i don't know enough about her but like yeah yeah. good for her for nursing yeah good for her for doing some nursing i know she's an important lady but it's one of those things that i'm like i know who that is yeah like I said, in 1873, um, they established the first no- nursing school. And the nursing school was established because Louise Lee Schuyler, who is the great-granddaughter of Alexander Hamilton, <gasps> yeah, visited the hospital. And she brought 60, quote, visiting committee members. And the reason that she came in there is because the nurses in the hospital were, like, really bad. Because they all were untrained and most of them were just there because they needed the housing. Mm. And so they worked for free in exchange for room and board. So they were very undertrained. Um, so Louisa Lee Schuyler established a visiting committee of 60 like upper class women. So they said women of society mm. um, to observe the hospital. And because they were so shocked by the conditions there, she established the nursing school. She paid for it so that there could be a nursing oh. program. And that's how they got their nursing program. 
which I thought was Good pretty for cool. Her. Good for her. Um, she never married and ended up like doing. She got um, an honorary degree from Columbia for all of her charity work that she did in her life, which is pretty cool. In 1874, they established the first children's clinic in America. In 1876, they established the first emergency clinic in America. In 1873, they established the first clinic for the insane, which was considered revolutionary at the time. Most of the time, they were just like dropped in asylums, not necessarily Mm -hmm. into a hospital facility. Um, And the term Bellevue since then has been used as a figure of speech to refer to a psychiatric hospital. So you might say, like to your kid, if you don't stop acting that way, I'm going to send you to Bellevue. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, that became, like, a phrase. Which I, I haven't heard in a while, but I believe that. Yeah, I've never heard that, but I feel like, why have I never heard of Do this Do you know another, wor- another word for figure of speech is just a metonym? I learned that today. Oh. A metonym is a figure of speech. Learn something new every day. In 1883, they established a surgical training program that has been modeled worldwide. They were the first one with an official training program. In 1884, um, they established the first pathology and bacteria lab. In 1888, they established the first nursing school for men. Which, like, is, like, feminism. (laughs) Men can be nurses, too. Why do they need to go to a separate school? I mean, like, old-timey. Yeah. Most schools weren't co-ed until after World War II. Um, In 1892, they established a unit for alcoholics. Which is pretty interesting. I'm going to talk about some of their scientific discoveries. Bellevue improved research on germ theory, and they also led research on germ theory. Um, germ theory is the idea that there are invisible things that pass diseases, not just visible things. Um, ironically, Dr. Frank Hamilton of Bellevue killed President James Garfield. What? Yes, because the older oh. physicians at Bellevue didn't believe in germ theory, and when he went to get the bullet out of James Garfield, he didn't wash his hands. He didn't wash the materials. And that's how James Garfield got infected, which is why the young physicians at Bellevue like really pushed for germ theory because an older physician had killed the president for not believing in it. So that was like a big practice of their research for a long time. the president that I said that like he died because um, he had a bullet in him and um, Albert Einstein was literally like, here, have a, an x-ray machine. And they were all like, nah, it's fine. Oh, the it's the W. It's a W1. And then um, he got septic and died. It's not Woodrow Wilson, is it? Um, it's Since. William McKinley. It was McKinley. Okay. I knew it was a W. <laughs> yeah, it was McKinley. Very similar situation. Uh-huh. Very similar situation. Other things that Bellevue has done for science, the Bellevue physicians promoted the bone bill, which legalized dissection of cadavers for anatomical study. Oh. We know so much about the human skeleton. There is a type of heart murmur called the Austin Flint murmur that is named after a Bellevue cardiologist. Oh. Yeah. In 1867, the Bellevue physicians championed the first sanitation code in the world. That started in New York City, which is nuts, considering New York is, like, really gross. gross. (laughs) Um, That same year, they built one of the first outpatient wards in America. In 1868, Stephen Smith, um, who was a doctor at Bellevue, became the first commissioner of public health in New York City. And he also started a national campaign for vaccinations. Yay. Yeah. In 1869, they made only the second ambulance in the U.S., and it was created by a Civil War vet, and it was like literally a horse-drawn carriage that they put some hay in the back of with like a slat so that they could be taken to the hospital. Uh That was pretty cool. Like 1869, first, second ambulance. Pretty nice. In 1889, they were the first to report that tuberculosis was curable. I don't believe that they are the ones that came up with the cure, but they were the ones that figured out that it could be cured, which was a big deal because up until then they were like, oh, you have tuberculosis? You're just going to die. You're just going to die. In 1961, they were the first hospital to complete a kidney transplant from a cadaver, which is important. Um, And in 1971, they were the first, they created the first active immunization for hepatitis B. So part of the reason that Bellevue is so famous is because they never turn anyone away Oh. Yes. Um, so some of the notable people that they've treated are the Irish during the cholera outbreak. They treated Jews and Italians who had tuberculosis, um, which was a really big deal because a lot of hospitals would turn them away. Yeah. And essentially the issue 
for many, many years was that anyone who had even a little bit of money would call a doctor and the doctor would come to their house. So mm-hmm. hospitals were largely avoided by the public because it was a place that like poor people would gather. Yeah. But Bellevue was always this place to be like, you can always come here. It doesn't matter if you can pay. And they're still very much like that today. Mm. And a lot of that started was because the first physician at Bellevue, his name was Alexander Anderson. Um, <laughs> That's just a fun fact about him. He wanted to be Alexander an engraver. Anderson. <laughs> right. <laughs> he wanted to be an engraver, but his parents pushed him into, into study medicine. However, this article noted that he did become one of the best engravists in the U.S. <laughs> in the early 19th Good century. Good for him. Everybody which is a quite hobby. A, which is quite a title, you know. Um, but he took a job at Bellevue when it was just a pest house, essentially. This was still during yellow fever. And he didn't know what to do medically. He had no idea how to treat yellow fever. Mm. So he just had to bleed them, like every hospital, and just kind of Mm. let these people die. But he set the precedent for treating all patients with kindness and compassion. Um, And he stayed at Bellevue Hospital through several epidemics. And evidently, he lost his wife, mother, father, brother, and son to yellow fever. Mm. But he still is, like, noteworthy for having treated all of these people who were dying yeah like with love and like people and not just like most people had kind of just tossed them to the street and said like okay you're gonna go die now it's like that scene yeah. in monty python yeah. <laughs> oh he'll be dead by the morning just put him on the cart like that, yeah that very much still existing yeah. in america in the early 1800s Jeez. um that concept of like oh they're dying anyway so they can just be put on a cart and shipped away and he didn't let that happen which is really nice um, it also gained a reputation amongst doctors as the place that you would see and treat anything, mostly because they had so many poor people who were living on top of each other coming in. So they were seeing a lot of new diseases that they didn't know, just tons of medical problems. Yeah. So it was a good place to conduct research. Um, and it was a place to really advance medical science because there were so many cases coming in. For most of history, um, like I said, if you were sick and you had any money, doctors would come to you. So Bellevue was the epicenter of healthcare for poor immigrants for many, many years in New York City. And it closed for the first time in nearly 300 years during the Hurricane Sandy evacuation. So it had never closed its doors between 1736 and 2012. Yeah, 2012, which is crazy. That's a very, very long time. And fun fact, First Avenue is shaped around Bellevue Hospital. Oh, it's so weird to me that I have never heard of this before. I know. Isn't that weird? You'd think, like, living in New York. I'm pretty sure the only place that I can think of that's, like, referenced it and it just totally went over my head is what I'm about to talk about now is Bellevue's role in the AIDS epidemic. And Mm. I'm pretty sure they talk about Bellevue and Angels in America and it just, like, Mm. went right over my head because i can't imagine that angels it, of america yeah, doesn't like, oh, mention yeah, hospital it, name considering yeah. it happens in new york city um so a, one of the reasons that bellevue has its reputation in new york now is that the the hospital treated more aids patients than any other hospital in the country um and it's especially important because new york city was the epicenter of the aids epidemic mm-hmm. um doctors were refusing to treat aids patients because Doctors thought that they could get it from their from their mm. patients, and so they were afraid. But Bellevue never turned anybody away, um, and they continued to accept everybody that showed up. Um, and although many died, it did have the highest mortality rate, but it also had the highest number of cases. Um, Bellevue played a key role in developing HART in 1996, which is the three-pill cocktail yeah. that is very important in AIDS prevention yeah. um, because they had so many people coming to them. One woman that I was like, wow, her name is Dr. Linda Laubenstein. Um, She was a doctor at Bellevue at the time, and she had polio and was in a wheelchair, but she was still a doctor there, and she treated one-fourth of all AIDS patients in New York City, which is nuts. Just one person, and she worked at that hospital. The history is not perfect, however. Between 1825 and 1884, 24 doctors died from diseases contracted on duty at Bellevue. In the early 19th century, it was controlled by corrupt politicians because it was a private hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, The mortality rate reached 20% on average at a certain point, and one year it was as high as 33%. One in three is not a great record if you're a hospital. No. Part of the issue is that the hospital was also a state penitentiary, Mm. um, and it was... Also, at the time, it was 
also in an insane asylum as well. So they were doing like too many things and they were just spread really thin. And this goes yeah. back to the issue with the nurses that the nurses were untrained, underpaid, and they were trying to do three jobs at once because it was yeah. all just one campus. So the commissioner sent the men and the clinically insane to Blackwell Island which I'd love to know more about. And he sent the women in the penitentiary to a place called The Tombs that I definitely need more info on. (laughs) Super ominous, and I don't love that name. Um, And after 10 years of a lot of, like, reform and a lot of trying to fix up the hospital, the almshouse was also removed. The almshouse was also still there the entire time, the homeless shelter, which is nuts. Um, And it was... It became primarily, like, a hospital run by physicians and surgeons instead of run by politicians good 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 yeah and and then in 1853 the mortality rate had dropped to nine percent which for 1853 it's not bad um yeah then the civil war happened (laughs) (laughs) um this is really sad the young doctors volunteered to stay and work at the hospital which is first i was like that's so admirable and i was like no 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 no. they were trying to get out of going going to the war (laughs) they're trying to get out of the army um, but I don't know, they're still needed where they are, I feel it's like. It's true, it's true. But unfortunately, uh, 14 out of 21 of the young doctors died of typhoid. Yeah, typhoid, the typhoid epidemic happened at the same time as the Civil War, which I don't really think about, but like that That's really sucks. That's not good. That really sucks. <laughs> that was pretty bad. Um, again, there was a serious nursing problem for most of the 19th century, and it wasn't until the 70s that Louisa Lee Schuyler, the 1870s, not the 1970s, came in and added all those nurses, and that definitely contributed to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellevue also did contribute to some barbaric methods of medicine, including amputations and electroshock. Um, people consider now the way they did amputations like truly her- terrible, because there was no... There's no way of knocking them out. There's no way of numbing it. Like, it really... I had to read an article about how they did it. And it was just awful. Tourniquets. Like, super bad. Like, just super bad. Essentially, they were like, you had to get the whole thing off in one minute. Otherwise, they would die of shock. Because that... It's so painful. It's nuts. I... What show was it that my family used to watch that was literally about a family, like, going west on a wagon? Dr. Quinn? No. Little House on the Prairie. No, <laughs> there's only two it shows. It was some about like it was some wagon. like mini series that my family really got into. It was called like I was about to say Westward Bound. <laughs> I'm pretty but sure it, it was like something like that. But like one character dies because she gets like um, like an infection in her leg, and they decide to amputate it. But they only get halfway through her bone because she like dies of shock, and it's like. Yeah, it was really bad. That's all I'm going to say. Um, they also did participate in electroshock, and this was so sad. They did it on young children because Dr. Loretta Bender, who was a pioneer on autism research, but we just literally didn't understand medicine at all. Yeah. she Her thought was to use electroshock to, mm. on autism patients to like understand how their brain was wired, which is absolutely awful. But she was the first person to discover... And decide that autism was not caused by bad mothering. Which people thought until literally the 1860s. They were like, oh, they're just like that because they had a bad mom. Which is so sad. Um... But so yeah, like the reputation hasn't always they it hasn't always been like a sunny bright place, but they maintain having a good reputation in a place that like New Yorkers are very proud of because they've always had they've had this open door policy and they still do to this day. Like yeah. you can come in there without insurance, without like you can come in an illegal immigrant and they'll still treat you, which has been a really big deal. Um, Bellevue psychiatric ward housed Mark David Chapman the night he shot John Lennon. <gasps> Allen Ginsberg and Eugene O'Neill have both stayed at the Bellevue Hospital. I don't know why either of them were there, but they were. Allen Ginsberg wrote about Bellevue Hospital on his poem, How. Um, the One of the wards that is closed down is now a homeless shelter. Oh, the psychiatric ward is closed down mm. and it's now a homeless shelter um, that is still up and running. One fun fact is that they kind of redeemed themselves with the James Garfield incident because... <laughs> 
Um, 20 years later, Grover Cleveland, when he was president, found a cancerous mass in his mouth. Um, and this was during the Great Panic of 1893, which is an economic depression. And Cleveland secretly hired a yacht with Bellevue surgeons and physicians on it. And they sailed the yacht upriver into calm waters and they performed surgery, removed the mass. And Grover Cleveland lived for many years. He died of a heart attack. Oh. So they did successfully treat another U.S. president, which is just wild. Wild to imagine it's like get on this boat and they just had they literally just like went a little bit out of new york on the boat and sat there and then they rode back in secret he didn't want anybody to know because he didn't yeah. want his critics to find out be like he's dying get him out of office yeah i don't know if this was during his first or second term not consecutive term but Mm-hmm. They did redeem themselves in that aspect. In 2014, the Bellevue Hospital took in Craig Spencer, who was the recovering New York City Ebola patient, um, when no one else would. Mm. Right now, NYC was forced to build a makeshift morgue outside of Bellevue Hospital. I was just hearing that on the news. About yeah. How, like, the morgues are overflowing. Yeah, oh, the world sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Bellevue is rushing to add and train staff to address the coronavirus. Bellevue doctors were told to anticipate as many as 12 intubations a day which is five times the normal rate Uh, yeah and at least four bellevue doctors and this is a week old article that i read this have tested positive for the coronavirus so that's what's going on there now um but that's everything about bellevue hospital they sound like they're doing important work yeah they did a lot of they did. They had a lot of firsts, as you could yeah. tell, which is pretty good. And it's like the history of medicine isn't going to be perfect because a lot of medicinal studies are very, very recent. You know. Yeah. But they did a lot of stuff for being around a long time ago. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yes, they used barbaric methods of medicine, but didn't we all? Yeah. So. You know what I just remembered? I read about today. This is totally unrelated. I'm so sorry. Okay, sure. That's fine. <laughs> Go for it. There was um, a museum in the in Amsterdam that had a Van Gogh painting, and it was closed because of the coronavirus, and someone broke in last night and stole a Van Gogh painting. <gasps> Which one? Um, it wasn't one I had heard of before. Was it the... Um, I don't even know how you say the name of this museum. It's like the... The Rijksmuseum? It wasn't the Rijksmuseum. It wasn't, and it wasn't the Van Gogh Museum. It wasn't a famous. It wasn't like one of the big ones. The painting was called. I think art theft is so interesting. Um, <laughs> the painting was called um, the Singer Laren Museum. Uh, it's just outside Amsterdam, and the painting that went missing is the Personage Garden at Nuenen in Spring. That's absolutely nuts. Wow, so we weren't dealing with that. I do think the, like, world of art theft, though, is so interesting. Mm. Like, I'd love to know more about that. Because <laughs> there are so many, like, famous paintings that have been stolen. It's like, so literally, I was reading about how the guy did it, and they said that um, the door was made of glass, and he broke the glass door. <gasps> That's it? Yeah. And, like, uh, obviously, like, an alarm was sound, and the police came right away. But by the time they got there, he had taken one painting and left. I guess if you go in with one with one yeah. thing in mind. And I don't think it's that big a museum. Like, he probably wasn't, like, searching for it for right. a while. He probably knew where it was. But why know. this one, like, painting? I mean... That's, like, not... I mean, Van Gogh is very famous and... Right. He probably could get a lot of money in it. <gasps> the day of the theft also happens to be the artist's birthday. Oh! He was born on March 30th, 1853. Happy birthday, Van Gogh! On that note, <laughs> oh, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIVW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you are hearing, please consider leaving us a five star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. Sarah, do you yeah. know what I've been wondering? What? I was told i think by you that the mona lisa got stolen once <gasps> since you were just talking about how much you love art theft oh my gosh yes Can you tell me what happened with that yes actually it's been stolen twice what okay tell me all about that and oh if, i will yeah, i'd love to hear about a heist <laughs> i love heists i think heists are so, i think heists are such an interesting form of crime yeah so fascinating any any drama that's about a heist i instantly love it 
whether or not sometimes it's about the good guy sometimes like the people I'm rooting for are the people doing the heist oh it changes yeah, yeah sometimes it's for the people trying to stop the heist totally depends yeah. but I love a heist movie love mm-hmm. a good heist absolutely all right Jane you know what I've been wondering what have you been wondering Sarah it's been a while since we did a conspiracy <gasps> and I know we all could use some fun in our lives at the moment so um you know much more about this than I do. I know literally only the name of it, which is the Denver Airport Conspiracy. <gasps> oh, girl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something's going on with the Denver Airport, and I can't wait to find out what it is. <laughs> um, in case I ever go to Denver, maybe I'll have to fly in somewhere else. <laughs> is there another airport mm-hmm. in Denver? No, but I could fly to a different town. Try. I don't know. You're going to tell me if I have to avoid the Denver Airport. <laughs> Is it like a dangerous conspiracy or is it just cool? I'm excited. <laughs> right. It's not dangerous for you. Well, <gasps> for me? No. No, maybe. No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm excited. All right. That's everything. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering. <laughs>